could not save himself, but rather God the Son had to come down in the flesh to save his people from their sin. It was necessary, contra Pelagius, that he condescend in the form of a man while still being God to save by faith apart from works. And then we saw that precise language was necessary to make proper distinctions regarding the person and nature of Christ. Are we going to say homoousia or homoousia? Are we going to say hypostasis or physis? And at times, uh, one side thought the other side was saying something that they weren't, and vice versa. A lot of confusion. And at Chalcedon, we saw that the Son of God is consubstantial with the Father, and that the Son of Man is consubstantial with the Son. Christ's deity, he is of the same substance as the Father. In his humanity, he is of the same substance as we. However, uh, we'll see with this next controversy that that did not satisfy everybody. Uh, and just a little side note. This is extra. Um, as I was thinking about these things, my mind wandered. It does that a lot. Um, And I thought, well, I remember the time when God came to Solomon and and asked him, you know, what is it you want? Tell me, I'll give it to you. And uh, God would grant his request. And I thought, I know what I would ask for. And you're like, what does this have to do with what we're talking about? Um, Without hesitation, I would ask that... God would grant me, my children, my wife, and all of you here, my family here at SVBC, that God would grant us spiritual maturity. That he would cause us to grow up in faith. That was just extra. Uh, My third note, or uh, point, ooh, backwards. My third point is the future of the church. I reminded myself that there is, this is going somewhere. We're looking back, but what we're dealing with now is going somewhere, right? Uh, So from a bird's eye view, uh, we see a forest, rolling hills of green, and doesn't seem to stop, but there there is an end to every forest, right? And there is an end to the church as we know it here on earth. The Bible tells us that the church has a very bright future, but we don't know exactly when that consummation will take place. And while the future of the church is secured by Christ, who is himself building it, its future is dependent on the spreading of the gospel. Just as church history past has impacted us in the present, what we do now in the present will impact the future future of the church for good or bad and for the sake of our progeny we cannot become disconnected or disassociated from the past Uh, i'm sure you guys are fully aware that 
in America today, in the forefront of the political scene and trending in social media, we have people who are openly and unapologetically promoting communist, Marxist, socialistic uh, reforms and agendas. People are, masses are cheering. The younger generations are cheering for socialism. Why is that? Because in large, our culture, our society, has become completely disconnected from historical reality. They have no, it's like they have no idea that socialism destroys economies, cultures, and freedom itself. And they're cheering for this. So at, we as a church, we run the same risk of ruin if we don't pay attention to church history, pay attention to the controversies that have taken place, that God has uh, put in our history for us here in the future. Um, Aaron... I know he didn't coin the phrase, but he, he said, what, three weeks now ago, he said that uh, those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. You didn't coin that, right? I'm just kidding. Um, but yeah, we run the same risk. If we ignore what has taken place in the church in the past, we run the same risk of repeating the same stuff. So it's really, it's really important uh, for us to pay attention to these things. We need, we need a deep, strong, rich, bold theology that is firmly rooted in God's word that we can pass down to our children, our children's children, and our children's children's children. We need to have a mature, grown-up faith that stands fast in the winds of political change or sociological change and that won't bend and break under the weight of controversy. Uh, may God forbid that we at SVBC here walk together two years, five years, ten years, and are still sucking down milk like babies. We should be we should be masticating on the tough things in Scripture. We should be wrestling together with the deeper things. Of God's word. The things of Paul that, that Peter would even say. He writes some, some difficult things to understand. Those are the things that we should be working through together as a church. Rather than drinking milk the rest of our existence like infants. We need to have sound doctrine in accordance with God's word. And we need to convey it with precision and clarity. What we believe and why we believe it should never be in question. We need to pay close attention to what our forefathers in the faith accomplished and endured for the kingdom of God so that we can prepare our children and grandchildren who are the future of the church. I'm convinced that controversy will plague the church at large until Christ returns. And we've seen it in decades past, and we see it today. So I just wanted to mention 
quickly uh, a couple of modern controversies. I mean, we, 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 we look back at these, the Pelagian controversy, the Arian controversy, and those were, those were hundreds and hundreds of years ago. It's easy to feel disconnected from that type of stuff. We don't, we don't have this side and this side at our church here fighting over something. So we don't experience it in the same way. Um, but there are modern examples that I just wanted to, to mention briefly. Um, some of us, not me, are old enough to remember uh, 1978. That narrows it down quite a bit, doesn't it? Um, the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy was forged by men such as R.C. Sproul, John MacArthur, J.I. Packer, James Montgomery Boyce, and many others who saw, by God's grace, what was happening and what was coming. The authority of God's word was being undermined by liberalism, and it continued to infiltrate evangelicalism until today, where we have men from pulpits and in seminaries that are saying, if the Bible is incorrect in parts, it's okay. It's not that big of a deal. Or the Bible is incorrect at many parts, and large portions of it should not be trusted or taken seriously. In in the context of the American Christian church. We have people saying those things. But they, God gave them the foresight to say, we're going we're gonna to confess this. We're going to uh, define certain terms this way. There was actually other um, additions to it in uh, regards to biblical application and uh, hermeneutics that came in the preceding uh, the, the following years. And then the just last year, we, we saw the Dallas Statement on Social Justice and the Gospel, where men such as John MacArthur, Bodie Bauckham, James White, Tom Askell, and many others, seen the permeating threat of sociological, psychological, and political theories in the church. They work together to provide clarity through affirmations and denials regarding race and ethnicity, manhood and womanhood, and human sexuality from a biblical perspective. And this would involve such discussions such as uh, homosexuality in the church, um, females in authority, and uh, racial division. And it's just, it, we, we see it, it's just infiltrating the church left and right. Um, and so they, they took a stand. They said, here's what we affirm. Here's what we deny based on God's word in regards to these subjects. And it's not been well received. Um, but we are, we have today in American evangelicalism, people that are suggesting that we divide our churches by the color of our skin, even in reformed circles. We are this close. We, I'm not, I'm not concerned with the SBC, but this close to having a female president of the Southern Baptist Convention. This close. It'll probably happen. So, all that just to say that 
when I started chapter 12, I struggled a little bit and I had to step back, remember all of these things because history is hard. World history in itself is hard, but church history even more so. We have these complex concepts and controversies um, that if you were to isolate a particular decade or even a century, there is no possible way to comprehensively talk about it because these things are transcending centuries. They're building over centuries and even millennia. Like if we, if we were talking about church history, we could go back to Genesis 3. The need for, redeem, or for a redeemed people like us. We, we could go back even further than that because the lamb slayed for our redemption was slain before the foundation of the world. So church history is extremely complicated. For example, um, two weeks ago, not last week, two weeks ago, um, Daniel was, part of it was probably he was ill. He wasn't feeling well. Uh, but he was like, there's just so much in this chapter. And there is. There's so much information. Because everything is so complex. Um, and then three weeks ago now, Aaron was, you know, talking about the Latin and Greek words and, and things like that. And uh, he's like, are you guys... You guys confused yet? And to myself, I said, yep. And so reading chapter 12, it got worse. Um, last two weeks ago, Daniel mentioned the fall of Rome. And um, technically, uh, most historians see the fall of Rome as starting way before 410 back to the Caesars. It happened incrementally over decades, centuries. And so it's it's hard to, to really uh, jump into a certain period of time and grasp everything and then just move on. Um, I, I intended to, to talk about the fall of Rome when I talked about Augustine. It was like five or six weeks ago uh, because he he addressed the, the... Augustine addressed the situation... Um, in his day, uh, he wrote the city of God as a response to the uprising from the pagans who were blaming the Christians for the fall of Rome. Well, this Rome never would have been able to uh, uh, be taken if if we were still worshiping our gods. But now that we've got the Christian God, look what happens. So he wrote an apologetic work called Church of, uh, the City of God in response to that. And uh, technically, the fall of Rome didn't actually take place. We say 410 when the, Vis the Visigoths crossed the Tiber and sacked the city and then went home. But the West didn't actually fall for another 60 years. So my, my point is, this stuff's hard. There's a lot to it. Um, so those were some of the aspects to get myself a big picture, reorient myself. just thought I would share those with you. Um, so we'll start, we'll start with the details of chapter 12. We'll talk about the monophysites, the monophysite uh, mono controversy. And um, I'll just run through my slides, and then I'll, I'll walk through it. Um, first, we have the, the teams. There's four teams. There, there's more than four teams. But in, in Needham's book, he only mentioned four. There's also the, 
the Henophysites and the Myophysites, which are kind of the same thing. They're basically monophysites, but they're saying it different. But so we won't even we won't even acknowledge them. But the monophysites, mono one, physite, uh, physis is person, right? Nature, nature, and uh, so that's where they're coming from. Christ has uh, one nature. They rejected Chalcedon and its creeds. Um, they claimed that Christ has one divine human nature. Uh, I heard a good example from Stephen Bratton at uh, GFBC. He probably didn't come up with it, but basically their concept was you it, you you got a glass of water. I don't know if, if the water is uh, the divinity or the, the the humanity, but basically you got a glass of water, you put sugar into it, you mix it up, it dissolves. It's it's now sugar water. So now you got a divine human nature, sugar water nature, whatever. Um, that's how I understood the, the monophysite position. Uh, big names, Severus of Antioch, Philoxenus of Mabug, Timothy the Cat, and Peter the Fuller. Then there was the, the Diophysites. They accepted Chalcedon but, and opposed Monophysites. However, they, they had two distinct natures. They, they claimed that Christ had two distinct natures, yet they improperly divided the person and natures of Christ. So their position was somewhat ambiguous. It wasn't very clear. Jesus of Nazareth suffered, but not the divine Logos is what they would say. Yep. That is improperly dividing. Yes. Okay. It uh, sounds like those two groups would be people who uh, the, the two groups that uh, were the catalyst for Chalcedon, the Apollinarians and the Nestorians. And it sounds like these are groups that ultimately reject or, or didn't fully agree with the creed. And they're doubling down with what they with what they with the presuppositions or beliefs that they went into the controversy with. Mm-hmm. Yep. Agreed. So, the monophysites, let me just, I'm already getting confused again. The monophysites, they had the one divine human nature, a mixture. Diophysites, they they had two distinct natures, but they improperly divided those, those natures. They would say that Jesus of Nazareth suffered, but not the divine Logos, which... The implications are that, well, if God didn't, if it wasn't divinity that was dying for you, how could a mere man carry the full wrath of God and all of our sins? So there's, there's problems. Uh, the Diophysites, um, they had Theodoret of Cyrus, Gennadius of Constantinople. They weren't a very big group. Then there was the Originists. They were weird. Uh, th- their position was 
interesting. They claim that Jesus of Nazareth was an eternally created soul who was closely united with the divine Logos. Um, and only his, only the human soul became flesh. Um, one of its proponents was Leonidas of Byzantium. Um, yeah, I was trying to... Very, very mystical, philosophical in nature. It was, it was strange. And then you had the Cyrillian Chalcedonians, which is where we fall into this category in regards to the hypostatic union. Christ possessed two distinct natures within his single person. Two natures, one person. Um, and the best example that I heard was that of a golden crown with jewels. Um, and I'll show you here in a second. Some of the proponents were John Maxentius, Theodore Rethu, Leonidas of Jerusalem. I drew a little sketch for you guys because it helps me when I have visuals um, of this golden crown. So you have this this golden crown, right? That's... That's the, the one person, right? And in this golden crown, you have gold and you have jewels. They're completely separate and distinct. You can see them. You can distinguish. They're not mixing together. However, they are together in one union. So that would be the crown is the person. The gold and the jewels would be the human and divine natures. All right. So, I'm going to run through this. Is it time? Um, actually, okay, I'll just, I'll just read through this and we'll pick up with uh, Justin the first next time. Okay, so, Emperor Marcion summons the Council of Chalcedon. I'm going in chron- chronologically right here. So, this is the controversy. Emperor Marcion summons the Council of Chalcedon, where Dioscorus is, uh, as patriarch of alexandria he is deposed and replaced by proterius the monophysites of alexandria they riot in protest but are forced into submission by byzantine troops that is until emperor marcion dies and now they're unrestrained the citizens of alexandria murder patriarch uh, proterius at the holy table of his own church Good Christian people, you know, they handle situations that way. Um, Timothy the cat, who is a monophysite, then takes over as patriarch of Alexandria. Um, And Peter the fuller, also a monophysite, becomes patriarch of Antioch. Leo, the new emperor, throws them both out. The monophysites are still hanging around, primarily in Egypt and Syria, when the next emperor, Zeno attempts a peace treaty with them called the Henoticon. The Henoticon basically said, forget Chalcedon, just affirm Nicaea, Constantinople, and Ephesus, and we can all get along. Uh, This made things worse. The West saw this as uh, who were completely committed to, um, to Chalcedon, saw this as a compromise and an act of apostasy. So Pope Felix in the West, which is now 
in in from our perspective now, looking back, Catholic Church refers to him as an anti-pope. That's neither here nor there. Um, pope Felix in the West excommunicates both Emperor Zeno and the Patriarch of Constantinople, Acacius. The hostility between the Western Chalcedonians and the Eastern Monophysites further divided the empire until Anastasius died and Justin I succeeded him as emperor. Did you get all that? No? Um, we could probably have time for discussion next week. We could ask questions and kind of work through any of the details we don't understand. But that's that's what we have for today. Next next week, we'll pick up at Justin the First. Okay? Let me pray real quick. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for today. We thank you for bringing us here in your providence. You've put us together. And uh, we, we praise you and thank you for that. We praise you that you are building your church and you're sustaining it. And you will continue to do it until you return for us. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you will bless the rest of our our morning here together. We ask that you would um, help us to love the word that it will be preached to us. Help us to uh, apply it by your spirit. And um, Lord, that anybody who, who's not here, people that are ill, pray that you would bless them and um, impress upon them that we love them and miss them and help us to uh, extend that to them. Uh, we thank you, Lord. Pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.